Welcome to Wireframe from Adobe, a podcast about good user experience design, how we shape technology to fit into our lives. I'm Koi Vin, Principal Designer at Adobe. Each week, we explore one aspect of good design. This week, I've got producer Amy Sandin back in the studio with me. Hi, Amy. Hi, Koi. So I want to introduce you to someone. Oh, no, I messed it all up. <sighs> I'm an idiot. This is Thad Starner, and no, he's not an idiot. He's a professor in the College of Computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I called him at his home office. Did the uh, comfort is all sort of crash down on you? Yeah, basically. In order to have a quiet place for our interview, Thad had built himself a fort out of pillows and a comforter. A fort that naturally collapsed as soon as we started talking. But it is precisely this flair for engineering that made me want to talk to Thad in the first place. For the last 25 years, Thad has been running one of the longest experiments of its kind on himself. It's an experiment in augmented reality. Since 1993, Thad has been wearing a face-mounted wearable computer. It's mounted on a pair of glasses. And the original prototype was connected to a keyboard. Whenever Thad has a conversation, he's taking notes the whole time. And then next time he runs into you, he can pull up the notes from your last conversation. He can read them while he's talking to you on a tiny screen at eye level. So what's great is that it could actually provide me information just in time, just when I needed it. And as a professor, it keeps making me seem much more intelligent than I am. So how does he access all that information so quickly with just a one-handed keyboard? Well, there's actually a voice recorder built into this wearable computer, but it's only recording his voice. So while he's talking, the computer can automatically search through this massive text document. It's basically a record of everything that he has ever said or taken notes on. That's pretty nerdy, but impressive. I agree. But to Thad, the calculation is pretty simple. Basically, that using these tools just makes him better. I'm a better professor. I'm a better student. I'm a better neighbor. Um, I'm more social when I actually have that um, ability to pull back the context of what we last said to each other. And what's important to them makes me appear a whole lot more socially graceful than I am. More socially graceful. Okay. Yeah, I know, Koi, this may not be your definition of socially graceful, but let me give you some context. Thad is responsible for advising dozens of students at a time with multiple research projects and questions and concerns. So having this tiny screen that allows him to suddenly pull up information and look at his notes, it's a gesture of interest, you know? It's a way of showing that he finds his students' work important. Okay, I mean, if it works for him, that's great. But does it ever make people around him uncomfortable? Yeah, I asked him about that. Not really. Most of the people who uh, are concerned about this stuff are more concerned about, you know, audio recording surreptitiously or video recording surreptitiously. I am very obvious about what I'm doing, and I'm just taking notes with a, with a keyboard. The, you can incorporate the use of the machine so well that really you become uh, a cyborg. The machine is augmenting you in your daily life. And so everybody just describes the um, interaction to you being better than you are. Thad told me that he's gotten so good at using this wearable computer that when he talks, he has actually changed the way he structures a sentence. So he can start talking about something, look at those notes while he's at the beginning of the sentence, and then finish the sentence with the information he just looked up. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting because in some ways it's the exact opposite of what designers try to do. We don't want to force people to change the way they behave in order to use the technology. But, you know, people do change their behaviors in order to get the most out of their devices or their apps or whatever. And that's what he's doing here. Thad says he pretty much has this down, except there was this one time when he was taking a course and a professor asked the class a question. So at the beginning of the course, we talked about dyxis. Dyxis is a term in linguistics for words like he or it that require context to understand. So Thad knew he could answer this question because he had his old notes on his wearable computer. Me being a smart aleck raised my hand because I knew I could get to my notes on any course very quickly. So I raised my hand and say, well, at the beginning of the course, we said that Dyxis was important because... The whole class waited to hear Thad's brilliant answer. Uh, uh... Thad's reality augmenter, his social graces machine, had failed him. I'll have to get back to you on that. I got into the wrong mode in my text editor. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> so it's easy, I know, to dismiss this as one researcher's wacky tech experiment. But Thad's work has been incredibly influential. In 1998, Thad was demonstrating an early version of this system at a conference when he was approached by two young techies by the names of Sergey Brin and Larry Page, of course, the founders of Google. And eventually, Thad joined Google to develop Google Glass. Glass was an augmented reality headset based in part on Thad's original prototype. And it was released to much fanfare in 2012. Remember that, Koi? Of course. How could you not? There was so much hype. Remember that big fashion spread in Vogue with all the models wearing Google Glass? Exactly. But it was pretty much downhill from there. Glass didn't look cool. They were expensive. They made other people worry they were being recorded all the time. So Google Glass just never took off. But that was not the end of the augmented reality headset. Over the last few years, many major tech companies have been working on their own versions of a glass-like device. Microsoft has the HoloLens. Snapchat has spectacles. Bose has a version. Apple is apparently working up to its own release of an augmented reality headset. Amy... To be clear, we're talking about augmented reality, not virtual reality, right? Maybe it's worth getting that distinction out of the way. Go for it. Uh, well, they're spelled differently. Thank you. Virtual reality takes you out of the world around you and puts you somewhere else, while augmented reality, it's a kind of a layer on top of what you see already. This is why Google Glass is such a big shift, because you're wearing them out in the real world, and only you are seeing this additional layer of digital information through those glasses. Just like only Thad is seeing that little screen above his left eye, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I know Thad is still an outlier when it comes to walking around with technology on his face this way. But many people in the world of technology believe that these tools that Thad helped pioneer are going to be much more common in coming years, even ubiquitous. That in a decade or so, many of us are going to be seeing the world through some kind of augmented reality lens, using augmented reality to access our digital lives much more often than we use laptops or smartphones. Koi, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think augmented reality is inevitable because we've been consistently hungrier and hungrier to get to that information that you can get to only on screens. And with augmented reality, you don't have to pull out your screen anymore. You don't have to turn to your screen on your desk or pull it out of your pocket. It's just sort of the way you see the world. 
generations that grew up with smartphones in their cribs, they're going to regard that as very antiquated, very old-fashioned before too long. It's way too much clicking, way too wide of a gap between what they need and the technology that's going to give it to them. Yeah, and one of your colleagues at Adobe is thinking a lot about this, Koi. What we've lived with so much for the last few decades is screens and keyboards and mouses that do really intermediate the experience. This is Silke Meisnix, head of emerging design at Adobe. It puts one layer between you and what you're trying to create. And AR can bring it back to being more natural, where it takes away the screen and allows you to interact with your hands as you would normally. I gotta say, to me, this talk about augmented reality gets pretty abstract and academic pretty quickly. So I asked Silka to give me an example of one way that augmented reality could be useful. And the example she gave me is of a classroom. You know, you can have the whole solar system in your room and walk from one planet to the other and understand the actual distance things are from each other. And you could go to things in the past, you know, Napoleon time and watch events in real scale or scale down so you can see it over a large piece of land. Listening to Silka made me wonder why Google Glass didn't take off. I mean, I know the technology was, from an augmented reality standpoint, kind of limited. But if augmented reality is so inevitable, why didn't more people get excited about Glass? Well, I can tell you, I didn't think about buying them for a minute. Why not, Koi? Uh, well, they weren't very cool. Yeah, you know, I heard this from several designers. One designer I spoke to is a woman named Jillian Hayes. She was a student in Thad Starner's department back in the early 2000s, and she's been researching wearables for over a decade. So I thought if anyone was going to be wearing glass other than Thad Starner, it would have been Jillian. And yet... I've not done a whole lot of wearing glass out in public. Um, I'm not sure I would, to be honest. (laughs) From a modern design standpoint, they were a mess, but they were this incredible tool and platform upon which other designers could come in and create new things. It felt very much to me at the time like that was what Google was going for, is let's create a very open platform and see what people will do with it. From what I understand, that did happen. After glass flopped, designers and technologists continued to play with this technology. And there are places now where everyone is wearing glass. These aren't early adopters or gadget fanatics. They're just people doing their jobs. There's a company called Agco based in Atlanta where factory workers wear glass to show them diagrams for how parts fit together or to scan a serial number. Glass is just part of their workflow. But what we didn't see is glass becoming part of mainstream culture. Yeah, I think the problem was that Google never came up with something that mainstream users would actually do with Google Glass out in the real world. You know, it's not enough just to create this amazing technology. You really also have to answer the question, how is a real person going to get some value out of it in everyday life, whether it's in business or it's in their personal lives or somewhere in the world? I'm thinking of examples where a new piece of technology was introduced. It was really dorky looking. Everybody made fun of it. But it was so useful that it just kind of pushed through. And now we don't think about it anymore. And the one that comes to my mind is the Bluetooth headset. Remember, like, the the jawbone? Yeah. Actually, this is is not just augmented reality glasses or, you know, audio headsets. The, The first laptop computer 
weighed something like 15 pounds. It was basically like carrying a, a suitcase. Every first iteration of technology it has a very high likelihood of being incredibly socially awkward. Yeah, it's hard to make game-changing technology that is not at least, at first, a little socially awkward. After the break, we will meet designers who are trying to find the least dorky applications for augmented reality, the use case that will finally bring AR from awkward to indispensable. We'll be right back. This episode of Wireframe is brought to you by Adobe XDCC. Adobe XD isn't just an all-in-one tool for today's UX UI designer. XD reimagines how designers create user experiences. With several time-saving tools and features, taking your ideas from artboard to wireframe to interactive prototype takes only minutes. Plus, Adobe XD's design specs make going from designer to developer seamless. With design specs, you can publish and share a public URL of your experience that your developer can use to inspect flows, grab measurements, and copy styles. You can even extract assets from design specs and password protect your published experiences. With the new starter plan for XD, bringing your concept to life is fast, easy, and free. Get started today by heading to adobe.ly slash Gimlet. That's adobe.ly slash Gimlet. We're back. I'm Koi Vin, and I'm here in the studio with producer Amy Standen. Hi, Koi. So a few weeks ago, I met a woman named Estella C. I'm a virtual reality and augmented reality artist. As an artist, Estella's canvas is the world around her. She makes artwork in augmented reality that can be superimposed onto whatever space you're in. I really like the idea of blending realities. How do I make something that half exists in the real world and half exists in the digital world? Estella is brought in by companies, including your shop, Koi, Adobe, to experiment with new kinds of technology. In this case, augmented reality. For artists, we, we are trained to express and push the boundaries. So I get brought on to experiment and play and try to make a new form of expression. Estella and I took a short walk around Oakland. And as we walked, you could almost hear the gears turning inside her head. Yeah, imagine if I had to paint a mural on that, on that building over there. Estella's pointing at a warehouse across the street from where we were standing. And she told me that traditionally, if you were an artist or a graphic designer planning, say, a mural, you might take a photo of the building, bring it into Photoshop, and then essentially design onto that 2D photograph. But what if, instead of looking at a tiny version of the building on your laptop screen, you were... Coming here to this physical space and then, like, using an AR tool to, like, view it and feel it and how big that feels. And you could see the depth and you could feel the air. You can hear the cars going around right now. You can smell the, the things around us. It's a different experience. To a certain extent, this is already happening. Architects are starting to use augmented reality to see what a building would look and feel like in space, how it fits into a block, what it's like to walk past the building, maybe even walk into it. But what really gets Estella going is thinking about what artists might do with this new medium. She points to a nearby industrial building covered in graffiti, the actual spray paint kind. I want to see what street artists can do with AR. A graffiti artist working in augmented reality 
they could cover an entire block or a whole neighborhood. Only this art you could only see through an augmented reality lens, like an iPad or a headset. I imagine that they just have tagged up the entire Oakland streetscape where there's like different types of stuff that we don't even know is there. But if we had the right lens to view it, then, you know, like we might see some sort of expression of some sort of statement about gentrification happening here or whatnot, you know? <laughs> it's kind of cool. Secret messages. Yeah, secret messages. I mean, that'd be kind of neat. Send them on a scavenger hunt. Estella is experimenting with all of these ideas using a tool called Arrow. Koi, this is your department. Want to tell us about it? So Arrow is a new tool we've been working on. It's currently in beta. What it does is it lets artists and designers create things in augmented reality. But you can use the apps that you're already used to. So if you're a designer who knows Photoshop or Illustrator, say, you can use those same tools that you're already comfortable with. And then you can import what you create into Arrow and turn them into augmented reality experiences. Yeah, one thing I heard is that until really recently, if you wanted to make something in augmented reality, you pretty much had to know how to code. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, not a lot of designers are comfortable with that. We've seen this over and over again. First, you get a breakthrough technology like augmented reality, and it seems really awesome, but it's also really difficult to work with, at least in that first stage. For that technology to really blossom and become widely adopted, regular people need to be able to work with it. You need a tool that puts something like AR in the hands of artists and designers. And when that happens, that's when you start to find the real-world use cases that really resonate with a wider audience. Yeah, I heard that from a lot of designers I spoke with. They are trying to answer these really big questions about what an augmented reality world is going to look like. Here's one guy I spoke with. I'm Paul Reynolds, co-founder and CEO at Torch. Torch makes an app that designers, or really anyone else, can use to make augmented reality experiences. And Paul is really gung-ho about AR, as you would expect. But he also has some concerns. Paul's worst nightmare, and I think mine too, Koi, is a scenario in which advertisers come to dominate augmented reality. So that, say, every car is an ad for Geico, or every street lamp is telling you to change your cell phone plan. What's going to prevent all of these things from screaming at us on this street corner (laughs) to tap on them and look at them? I mean, augmented reality could be a sea of billboards. We have called it the Tokyo or Times Square effect. And to me, that is the, uh, the potential route that this could go. If we carry over how we do mobile applications and web applications today... They're very freemium-based or advertising-driven. We don't necessarily want that all the time. He's totally spot on with advertising. There's a long history of new technologies being propelled to mass acceptance by advertising. And if that's going to happen in AR, where advertising could potentially dominate everything that you see, that's really uncharted territory. There's a Pandora's box of questions and issues here that we're going to need to root through over the next several years. And to Paul and other people I talked to, we're at this really crucial moment where we, and by that he means designers, get to decide what the AR future looks like. The nice thing is these platforms are so new. If we decide as a society or or enthusiasts of these new platforms that we don't want that, Now is our opportunity to kind of establish that pattern before it's too late. I ran this by Silke Meisnix at Adobe. 
this question of a dystopian AR future and, and how worried we should be. And she had what I think is a more sort of philosophical take on it that had to do with how we think about technology in general. Silka told me this is what humans do. We're nostalgic for the past and we fear what's in front of us. I guess I do too have the fear of the unknown. I don't think that's unusual. Um, And I think that's actually healthy. But we need to then take that fear and... And that's why I'm working in this industry, to make sure that we build a better future for everybody. It's our responsibility to make that future better. And we can do that. And I see a lot of great things happening already. Silk is right. It's not a bad thing at all for designers to proceed with caution here. Because the decisions that designers make now are going to have really broad implications in the future. Design is becoming less and less of a veneer that's put onto certain parts of the world and more and more integrated or enmeshed with everything else in the world, especially in augmented reality. So, Koi, what's your advice for a designer who's confronting not just augmented reality, but other new technologies that have the potential to really re-sculpt how we operate in the world? I think the very first thing you do is you bring a very thoughtful and expansive view of how your design is going to impact the world. So it's not just about making sure an ad shows up in your AR glasses and that that ad gets clicked on. It's really about how is this going to affect a person's long-term well-being or how is it going to impact their perspective on the world? Yeah, it seems to me that there is or will be a real conflict here between what's good for the world and what is good for a company's bottom line. And I can see how designers might end up in the crosshairs of that conflict. Right. That's exactly the kind of tension that makes it so important for designers to bring our ability to empathize with users to this technology today. Now is when the future is being laid out for us. This augmented reality world is just taking shape, so... It's really an opportunity for designers to help shape it. And I know it's challenging to master all the dynamics of this new medium because it's so fresh and different and the tools are so young, but we're really at a unique moment in time right now. We're literally designing a whole new world here. Next week on Wireframe, When UI is so good, it's bad for you. These products, you know, newsflash, are built to be engaging. That's these companies' job. They are designed to get you to spend as much time as possible with them. This episode was produced by Amy Standen, Isabella Kolkarni, Ricky Novetsky, and Abby Ruzica. Rachel Ward is our editor. Catherine Anderson is our engineer. And Keegan Sanford created our show art. Learn more about the show at adobe.ly slash wireframe. You can subscribe to Wireframe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. I'm Koi Vin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>